When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back. So a couple things I want to talk about today in terms of the the economic and and financial picture going forward and and the broader marketplace in terms of of the stock market, the bond market, etc. But I want to start off quickly here because I am recording this right after uh, the the U.S. Open here on Friday, uh, May 15th for, for the markets. And, you know, as I speak, there's actually been a, a fair bit of movement in the precious metals market. Now, we'll see if this holds up by the end of the day, which would be the end of the trading week. Uh, hey, even by the time I actually publish this video. Um, but as I speak, silver is actually sitting at $16.55. And gold has moved up pretty significantly as well, uh, currently sitting at $1,743.47. Now, to, to put that in perspective, you know, if you go back um, just a couple days ago, you know, gold was around, as it had been for a while, around that 1700 level. But silver, you know, had been lingering, you know, under $15 an ounce, around $15 an ounce. It made a move up to 1550 which wasn't, you know, that big of a deal if you look at where it's been over the last, you know, month or so. Um, but we're now looking at silver north of $16 North of 1650, actually a pretty big deal. You know, if you look at the gold to silver ratio over the you know the past few days, um, it's moved you know to levels that we haven't seen in um, a couple months. Honestly, uh, it's down uh, right around 105 to one. Now, of course, as always, this paper gold to silver ratio does not reflect the actual physical gold to silver ratio, which is remained much lower. But this hasn't, you know, the ratio hasn't been this low since, uh, I'd say probably some point in in March, you know, the middle of March, that's when the ratio spiked up, you know, over 120 to one at one point in time. Um, And then ultimately, you know, sat around 112, 110 for a while. Well, we're we're now down to 105. And again, this could be a market fake out. And I'm not, you know, acting like, like, this is the big breakout we've been waiting for. Um, but it is encouraging to see that ratio move down and silver move up pretty, you know, considerably. And and I want to remind you that that we we continue to not live in, I guess, normal times in these markets. I don't know when, when was the last time we can call these markets, you know, authentic, organic, uh, anything like that. I mean, it's it's years, maybe decades since that's been the case. But. Um, in, in terms of how quickly these markets move, we're still in the same, I think, regime that we were in in March, just on sort of a, a hiatus, uh, just sort of a, a break in the action and the volatility here. Uh, because the same reason that the markets were, were you know, making these crazy moves back in March, and, and by markets, I'm packing oil markets, Precious metals, the stock market, the bond market, those same factors are, are mostly in play here in terms of, of fundamentals. You know, the liquidity picture, 
may be a little bit different. These markets may be a little bit more liquid because of the Fed and their support for markets. And we know that you know the stock market in particular is, you know, what what do I always say on this channel? Largely just a product of uh, of liquidity and credit growth, right? And nothing more than that. Um, however, you know, as I'm you know recording around open today market open here in the United States, we do see, you know, a fair bit of movement in these markets, which would suggest that further downside could be around the corner in the stock market, a return of volatility, because, you know, we've been under this lockdown for, you know, I don't know, middle of March. So that's eight weeks now, roughly, about two months. And the economic fallout for that is, is more and more so being realized. We, we, we've known for many, many weeks that, that jobless numbers are increasing, unemployment's increasing. You know, each day it seems like we get a new bit of economic data that shows you know, retail sales are just doing terrible, industrial production, auto sales, etc. Right? I mean, they, there's very little positive economic data out there these days, plenty of negative economic data. Um, and yet, the impact that it's having on companies, corporations, consumers has been somewhat limited, at least to the point where it's going to cause you know, significant um, problems to, to the broader financial system. I mean, you think, well, a slowdown in profits, a slowdown in sales, a slowdown in income, a rise in unemployment. In theory, that should, especially to, to, to how great an extent that's occurred, in theory, you should see a very significant rise in bankruptcies um, of defaults, foreclosures, repossessed vehicles, etc. Across the board, corporations and consumers alike. That's what you would expect. However, it takes some time for that to be the case. I mean, let me ask you, if, if you have a car payment, if you have a credit card payment, and you just stop paying it right now, how long would it take for that to, well, become delinquent, and then ultimately for you to you know, default on that? That takes a, a length of time. And, you know, along the way, a lot of these businesses have been bailed out or they've had some sort of, you know, part of the PPP. Um, Consumers have had, you know, stimulus checks to help them out along the way. However, and and some of them had, a lot of them have had unemployment that's helped them pretty significantly, uh, getting paid quite a bit from that. However, I maintain that, that the overall economic picture is still not positive. Like you can try and finance this recovery however you want through, through, stimulus checks through unemployment through you know forgivable loans to businesses the economic picture is still terrible there's still a very high likelihood that a lot of these companies will default their debt is going to be downgraded etc and you know the worst economic pain is is still to come you know the funny thing is here is that in terms of you know the depth of of this recession that you know what at what point in time what day was the the highest number of individuals out of work you know we might be past that point in time maybe that was a week ago maybe two weeks ago i don't know however the the 
the, I think the worst part of this recession in terms of market moves, in terms of effect in the financial system, has yet to come because all of these you know, defaults, all of these bankruptcies, all of these debt downgrades, all of these just disastrous um, earnings reports for not only quarter one, but quarter two, all those things have yet to be fully realized because we're only two months into this thing. It's been a massive recession, a massive slowdown. But these things take time to play out. And I think there's still massive downside to come if you're somebody like me that believes that from time to time, fundamentals, um, some sense of uh, um, organic markets can actually matter. You know, there can be some sort of fundamentals that matter in the market. The markets can almost act organically. And then they're not just credit and liquidity driven. They're not just algorithm driven, right? Um, so even as I speak today, I mean, the U.S. 10-year treasury, which, you know, the treasury tends to be a pretty good indicator of of uh, market, I guess, risk whatnot. You know, lower yields generally signals higher amount of risk, volatility, downside in the stock market. You know, the U.S. 10 years moving to the downside over the last, you know, 12 hours here down to to uh, a little over 61 basis points, right? And and on the precious metal side of things, you know, I think that that same reality is ultimately going to be, you know, realized eventually because once people realize that, like, we're nowhere near out of the woods, all we've done is is – slightly have helped out consumers and, and corporations. And, and if we want to, you know, continue to help them out, we're going to have to take on even more debt at the government level, at the state level. Um, and, and that there's still significant downside, despite the PPP, despite the CARES Act, despite future um, stimulus packages. Once, you know, traders realize that, well, they're going to go back into this, you know, what, back into the same... I guess, cycle, they're going to go back to the same realization that some traders have already made, and that is that the Fed is is going to continue to act very aggressively with quantitative easing, you know, balance sheet expansion, money printing, whatever you want to call it, and, and lower interest rates. You know, in, fact, in fact, it's even funny after uh, Powell gave his speech earlier this week. Which, which did cause silver and gold to move a bit to the downside, but they actually recovered pretty nicely from it. He was talking about how he's basically still not a fan of, of negative interest rates. And yet, markets sort of called his bluff on that and, and are still pricing in negative interest rates. Why, you might ask? Well, we, we know that the Fed, in terms of policy tools, one of their favorite and most often used policy tool is not interest rates or you know adjusting them, nor expanding or, or contracting their balance sheet. It's words, right? They like to telegraph what they're going to do. And so in terms of, of Jerome Powell and his way of thinking, he's gone uber dovish in the past couple of months because of what's been going on in the stock market, the repo market, liquidity, et cetera. Some of this predates the COVID-19 recession, which, you know, maybe we shouldn't call it that because this was a recession that was long overdue and and... COVID-19 just sort of, you know, pricked that bubble, or at least the reaction to it. Um, but he realizes he's gone uber dovish, and he does not want to go so dovish that he's going to go negative interest rates right now, right? 
if we think that Jerome Powell actually has it in him to go for negative interest rates in the future, he doesn't want to um, use up that bit of ammunition right now. You know, you can think of that as, as a reserve, as a reserve ammunition, pool of ammunition that he has. Um, rather, what he would prefer to do is right now, when, when there's a bit of a break in the action, when markets aren't doing that terrible, talk about how, you know, he's still not a fan of negative interest rates, how it's, they're like, you know, his, his thoughts and it hasn't really changed. That may or may not be true, but that's what he's going to say so that markets stop pricing in negative interest rates. He's going to use it as a tool, right? He's going to do some verbal monetary tightening, if you will. And that's basically what, what he did in that speech. You know, what's the next stage of of this then? Well, guess what? Because he's verbally tightened monetarily, that gives him some room to verbally loosen monetary policy in the future and say, you know what, maybe negative interest rates weren't the worst idea in the world. Maybe we can do that. And then he has a whole other step to go before he, you know, he actually goes negative, before the Fed actually goes negative. Of course, it's not just him. Right, it's the broader Federal Reserve, but but he still has some um, maneuvering room, I guess. So, I mean, the market's kind of called that bluff, right? The Fed is ultimately going to have to go more negative or, or more in terms of real rates. I think they're negative. I, I don't know what the real inflation deflation picture is, but but they will have to go negative, like every other central bank in the world, or at least they'll feel that they need to. It's just a matter of time. I think markets are right in pricing that in. They have to print more money because this crisis is far from over. The markets have just been stabilized. Um, consumers have been, you know, to some extent, bailed out. Corporations have been bailed out, but all of this is just a reshuffling of, you know, to use a really overdone analogy, a reshuffling of chairs on the deck of the Titanic. That's, I mean, that's quite literally what it is. As I, you know, talked in my last podcast. It's a redistribution of, not wealth, but debt. Instead of the consumer and the corporations taking on more debt and, gosh, running risk of defaulting on it, the government's just going to take on that debt by bailing out corporations, businesses, and consumers. Right, But the debt is still there in the system. It's still unproductive capital going into to funding the U.S. Um, debt, basically, the U.S. federal debt rather than, you know, consumer debt or corporate debt. It's still a drain on the system. It's still, you know, a couple more square inches added to this, you know, massive parachute that's dragging behind this car that is, you know, the U.S. economy and this analogy that I use from time to time. And it's just a matter of time before traders realize that, hey, um, this answer of, of, you know, the answer to this question of, you know, what will this economic recovery look like? It very well may look like, think of it this way. Have, have any of you read an, e, you know, an EKG before? Um, electro, electrocardiogram. Uh, if you look at one, and it depends on what lead you're looking at, but if we look at kind of what the class, I don't, I don't remember what lead it is, if it's lead one or two, but, but, um, there's this classic picture of kind of what this EKG looks like. You know, the heartbeat, the electrical signal of a heartbeat. It looks like these squiggles, these kind of 
peaks and arches or peaks and, and, and valleys and whatnot. You know, there's this um, R wave, which is this big peak up, S wave down, and then this, you know, T wave, which is kind of this return to, to normal. And I think, um, or a return to kind of like neutral on this on this chart, I guess. And I think that's going to be similar to what our economic recovery looks like. Not the whole QRS T wave, but but in particular, this move down from the peak from where we were in, in you know, February or January. But there will be, a, I think, a pretty rapid recovery, but it's going to be nowhere near to where we were at that point in time. You know, if you will, it's going to look like a reverse check mark, and then just, you know, slow flat recovery from there or slow sloping up recovery from there but i don't think it's ever going to make it back to where we were before why because this economy now has an extra few trillion dollars worth of debt that is going to to act like a you know a parachute on a drag car it's going to slow this thing down so where do you know where do precious metals factor into this well you know as i've been saying about the you know markets and, and the fed markets finally realizing that the fed is going to continue to have to to loosen monetary policy and the fed realizing that that time's up this crisis is far from over they're going to have to act again at least according to their um their playbook once markets realize that to a greater extent you see that then move into the precious metal space you see that the dollar ultimately you know weaken long term but you see the the price of silver and gold um rally considerably it, it's really astounding how many big banks how many analysts voices etc are now you know predicting gold to not just 1800 but 2000 you know 3000 etc i mean i i think in today's world i don't think i could put a limit on how high gold is going to go you know short of a hyperinflation if we don't get into a hyperinflationary picture you know we're probably not going to see a hundred thousand dollar gold right but but for those that say you know ten thousand dollar gold that sounds sounds outlandish and yet very very possible i think given the correct um the correct amount of stimulus from central banks, debt accumulation, um, crisis-driven, etc. I, I think that that's very possible. I think it's just a matter of of um, when will it take for the Fed, or how much longer will it take for the Fed to to realize that they, you know, this whole idea of decreasing the amount that they're, you know, printing each week, has has they have to reverse that. Um, that they will ultimately have to go negative. And, and the same realization has to be made, by the way, for by, by, by the ECB, the European Central Bank, the, B, the Bank of Japan, People's Bank of China, etc., all move back towards this, this faster and faster easing of monetary policy, you know, continuing this race to the bottom for these major currencies of the world, um, further accumulation of debt, and 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 I think you know there has to be some level of of crisis. I think, as I said, you know, the, we're we're only through the first chapter of this crisis, um, and and I mean that I think, and when I say crisis, I'm not referring to a decline in a market. 
like yes, a, a stock market crash, let's say we move down 10% from here in the next week, that might qualify as a crisis. And I'm talking about the stock market. But but ultimately, that's just a market moving. Market A market moving, yes, can impact. It does impact the financial system. It does impact the economy. However, I'm still looking for something broader, a broader financial crisis. I don't know what it's going to look like, ultimately. Is it going to be, you know, ultimately, you know, maybe the final chapter of this will be a, a loss of confidence in purchasing power in a currency, in a central bank, in a government. But I think before that, you know, I think there, there will be a pretty significant crisis, you know, for financial institutions. I mean, that's kind of where I go back to. Banks, um, large lenders, because of the, for, for I mean, I'd say for two reasons. A big one would be um, simply because that they may, they may not be accounting for or may not be expecting the, the sheer quantity, the sheer volume of, of debt that will be defaulted on in the coming months, six months, 12 months. Because again, it's going to take a while for a lot of this to, to work its way through the system. I think a lot of them just are not accounting for just how much losses they will experience. But then the other side of it is, you know, this idea of, of um, illiquidity in debt markets. You know, I, I forget the author, but I was reading a, a Twitter thread, I think he's yesterday, and he's talking about um, CLOs and, and the illiquid state of them, but also the, the uh, or potential illiquidity in those markets in the future, but, but also the, the uh, financial alchemy that's occurred, you know, in the lead up to this crisis on these CLOs, basically very similar to, to what happened in the, you know, subprime mortgage market and the mortgage market prior to uh, the, the Great Recession, where you had a whole bunch of, of really poorly rated, you know, subprime mortgages that were repackaged and then repackaged again and then repackaged again. I don't know all the details of it, how many times they were repackaged. But long story short, you had a, a ton of really poorly rated consumer debt, which, you know, should be trading at a high interest rate because of a high and, and a relatively low price because of the amount of risk involved, but repackaged so many times um, to the point where it uh, looks r- like it's rated far, it, it basically is rated, looks far less risky, is rated far better than it actually is, and thus is priced higher at a lower yield, right? Sounds like a win-win for whoever's repackaging this and selling it. Of course, it, it ultimately led or was contributed to one of you know, the largest financial crises we've ever seen in the world. It's a similar picture today in CLOs. A lot of crappy debt gets thrown in there, it gets repackaged, and all of a sudden it's rated at a you know, higher rate compared to the aggregate rating of all the you know, debt or bonds um, prior to that, the debt of these corporations. So, And again, when that gets... The two problems with that would be that you know when when those defaults increase, um, the, the true value or or lack thereof in these CLOs gets realized by investors, and they have to eat that loss, or or financial institution that that is holding it has to eat that loss. Um, but also, you know, there's this risk of illiquidity, in the sense that lending, um, not lenders, but but uh, rating agencies, you know, such as Sanders and Poor's and Moody's, etc. 
uh, Fitch, they downgrade these CLOs. And you have a very similar picture to what happens in the uh, this kind of crossover between investment grade and junk bond uh, markets, where, where you have a huge downgrade of investment grade debt into the junk bond market. All of a sudden, the junk bond market is is much, much larger than it was beforehand. And not only have prices declined, and, and there's a lot of people looking to get out for that reason, but also the supply has increased. And there's just not enough you know, dollars to go around. And, and you have an illiquid market that is likely moving to the downside. Right? Illiquid markets can move in either direction. Of course, I'm talking to the downside. And you have a very similar, you'd have a very similar picture in the CLO market, right? And so, I mean, those are just, you know, those are just one example, right? There's likely to be other crises. I, I anticipate um, there to be potentially some rumors of or actual bankruptcies by major cities, counties, and states, pension funds that may be defaulted upon or may be scaled back significantly. I expect there to be political crises related to all of this. You know, um, I expect, you know, shale oil and its decline in the coming months to have a huge impact on the decline of the U.S. economy going forward. Right. I mean, there's so much more that's that has yet to to come in regards to to this whole you know recession that we're in right now. And it plays into why for, for several, several weeks now, I've been saying this is a recession. This is a slowdown that we're not going to get out of for potentially a full decade. We're going to need a full you know, economic um, financial system reset before we can, I think, get out of the hole that we've dug for ourselves. We can try but it's going to be incredibly lackluster. It's going to be worse than the last 10 years in terms of recovery. And you might say, well, you know, the recovery is um, actually wasn't that bad. Uh, don't get fooled by the media. Don't get fooled by, you know, recency bias because the last couple of years felt pretty good because of tax cuts or, or whatever, uh, a, a surging stock market. As a whole, you know, the last 10-ish years prior to this recession was a very long recovery, very drawn out and very slow in terms of GDP numbers relative to past recoveries. It's a function of debt. It's a big part of it is a, it's a function of of high amount of debt in the system and, and corporations that were allowed to continue to exist and were bailed out when they should have been allowed to, to just fail, go bankrupt. Um, but this time around, you know, they're operating from the same playbook, they being the Fed, you know, government, etc. But the recovery... And, and therefore, the recovery is going to follow a similar path. It's going to be incredibly lackluster because the amount of debt in the system is even larger than it was you know, a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago. So prepare accordingly. And of course, precious metals play into this. And I'm not, I'm not you know, trying to make this a sales pitch for precious metals or anything. I'm simply saying for those of you that are in precious metals, you know, you, I don't think I need to tell you exactly what what the implications are for precious metals. Because ultimately this playbook that I'm referring to that the Fed, that the U.S. government uses, um, they're going to continue to use this playbook. And this playbook necessitates the need for a greater and greater amount of stimulus via you know, fiscal policy, spending, stimulus, bailouts, etc., and via monetary policy. I'm talking lower rates, potentially negative, and quantitative easing 
slash money printing and eventually full-blown debt monetization helicopter money buying stocks buying more and more corporate bonds all of that i mean it's it's coming eventually it's in the playbook they just haven't you know gotten that deep into the playbook yet they're still you know sticking with their their classic west coast offense or, or whatever you want to call it if we're talking you know in in american football terms um but but they're going to get desperate pretty soon. We're gonna we're gonna see the Fed trying to execute you know I don't know some flea flickers, you know some some try trying to you know some triple options or whatever you want to call it again in relative in relation to football. Um, but but I think it's going to be an utter you know fail long term because they're gonna, going back to those of you that have listened to my channel for a long period of time, months years. You know, there's this idea that I, I've gone off of for a long time now in relation to um, the U.S. Gosh, and I'm trying to remember exactly what the analogy or exactly how I put it. But basically, my long-term outlook has always been that the Fed is going to take, or at least, you know, when I came to this realization, that the Fed is going to take um, the dollar, they're going to take the stock market, and they're going to take, gosh, the, I want to say it's the, the, the economy. And then what they're going to do is they're going to basically, you know, sacrifice the economy, sacrifice the dollar in order to do their best to, you know, prop up the stock market and keep liquidity. I guess I, I should say stock market slash financial system. They're going to sacrifice the dollar, sacrifice the long-term economic prospects in order to to prop up the stock market and prop up the financial system through credit, through liquidity. But, you know, the downside to that is going to be, um, well, the sacrifice of the dollar that I'm referring to, i.e. inflation, massive devaluation of the dollar, and the economy, long-term economic prospects. Because guess what? High inflation is hugely negative for long-term economic prospects. So, as always, I'd like to thank every one of you for tuning in to today's podcast i don't even know what the theme of today's podcast is a lot of this is train of thought today and i wish i had more specific news items but but i feel like some of this is um important i don't know i feel like you know even that is is sort of understating the importance i guess of, of not what i'm specifically talking about because i'm so you know important or something but but the broader themes behind what I'm saying today in terms of, of the long-term outlook for the U.S. economy. Um, we're, we're talking a 10-year slowdown. I, I just use that number, 10 years. It might be shorter. It might be longer. I just use that as a ballpark figure. But we're talking about an economic slowdown, of which we haven't seen as a country in a very long time. And, and I think that the attitudes of people in the United States aren't prepared for it. You know, you think of the Great Recession, 1930s. Um, if you were alive in 1930, you know, you think, you know, there were people alive in 1930s that were alive during, well, countless, you know, recessions and inflationary and deflationary periods, etc. You know, during the early 1900s, late 1800s, there were people that were alive during and post, you know, Civil War still. You know, you think, you know, if, if you were 10 years old in 1865, let's say, at the end of um, the Civil War, you know, you're born in 1855, that would make you, 
you know, 75 years old at the start of the Great Depression, right? I think collectively as a society, um, the U.S. had some some concept of, of what hardship really was, both in the North and the South, right? Uh, and that's just the U. I I mean, that's a U.S.-centric view. But of course, in Europe, a lot of European countries had a pretty good sense of what real economic hardship and and even wartime hardship was like in, in you know during the Great Depression. I mean, think of what they went through in World War One. A lot of people in in well, where the war is really being fought, you know, France, Germany, Belgium, Italy, Poland, you know, a lot of Eastern Europe, Russia. You know, they they knew what loss was like. They knew you know on a massive scale. They knew what economic damage on a lot massive scale was like. Um, but, but today I think the best that we have to relate to this here in the United States, and I think, you know, much of the Western world is, I mean, the great recession, like, yeah, there's, there's World War II vets around here in the United States. We didn't really suffer a whole lot economically compared to, to Germany, France, you know, UK, et cetera. But, but I think, uh, Russia, but I think, you know, as a collective, you know, societal memory, I think some of those memories are fading. You know, maybe in Eastern Europe and Russia, there's still the memory of, of the Soviet Union and those economic troubles for decades. But I think for, for Western Europe, for the United States, for Australia, heck, even for China, I think some of that, um, although I'm not so convinced for China, but certainly for, for the Western world, I think that societal, that collective memory, if you will, if there's such a thing, of what real hardship is alike in, in economic terms and otherwise is fading. And and I think that is dangerous because first of all, you're gonna have a lot of people that are going to be absolutely hopeless in the midst of this recession, much like the Great Recession, but this is gonna be so much worse, so much more drawn out, I think. You're a lot of hopelessness, but also I think it's going to lead us into to um, a situation that that we didn't really maybe think our way through. Uh, think uh, what, what I mean by this is, you know, heading into World War I, countries in Europe, um, they, had, they had a pretty good memory of what war was like, their idea of war. And, and with that war, there was, there was loss. Um, there was also gain. I mean, a big part of war, though, for them was gain, gain of national pride, maybe a gain of a little bit of territory, etc., but they hadn't ever experienced loss on the scale of what they were about to experience it. Because, you know, prior to that, uh, there there hadn't been war on that scale, you know, with the exception of maybe this, the, the you know, this, what is it, Russo-Japanese War, you know, about 10 years prior, the, uh, nine years prior or something like that. They they hadn't experienced war on, on that scale with the use of tanks and chemical weapons and fortified positions and machine guns, etc. Machine guns had been around, trenches, etc. But but it was a totally new way of fighting a war. Uh, and artillery, I should add that in too. Um, and and more people died than I think anybody expected in World War One. And the amount of loss was staggering. And I wonder if we're walking into a same setup here in the West, in the United States. This lack of realization of what real loss. And I'm not trying to to um, minimize any loss of life from 
you know, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan or other, you know, conflicts. But but I think even, you know, the the memory of the loss that we experienced during Vietnam, I think that's slowly fading, or the Korean War, certainly World War II. I think that memory is fading. And we could be walking into something, um, whether it's a literal war or something else, where where this idea of massive loss across society is, is just something that maybe we... Um, wouldn't be expecting, right? And I'm not, even, I'm not even talking in reference to the coronavirus either, right? Plenty of loss there, but that's not what I'm referring to either. Um, and I, I don't know. I, you know, my gut tells me geopolitically, I'm talking geopolitically, I'm talking war, that, that in times of crisis over the next 10 years, if we're in a total economic despair over the next 10 years, I fail to see how that doesn't end in a major conflict with, you know, Iran or, you know, China, Russia, you know, what have you, Venezuela. But I think that, you know, in such a conflict, which I would expect to be scaled up to to a much greater extent than anything like Iraq in 2003 or 1991, I think it was, the first desert storm, um, or Afghanistan, uh, I think that we'd be experiencing loss to a much greater extent. And that's just one example, you know, geopolitical. It could play out differently other than some sort of a, a war, a conflict. But I think that that we haven't experienced loss, nor have we experienced hardship like what we're going to experience in in many many decades. I think that societal memory is fading, and I think we're we're very ill prepared mentally and emotionally for what's coming. Um, so I I know where I I know where I'm at with it. You know, I know that my hope ultimately, even though I don't like, you know, who likes discomfort, you know, even though I don't like discomfort, even though I don't like uncertainty, etc. I know that my hope is found in my, you know, my God, my, my savior, Jesus. And, and, and I know that that, you know, hopelessness is not something I have to fear because, because looking at things from an eternal perspective, you know, a, a recession seems pretty minor in the whole scheme of eternity, the whole perspective of eternity. Uh, but but I know that there's so many people out there that don't have that hope. So I guess prepare yourselves mentally. And, and of course, I know where where I am a little biased towards, but where I think, you know, the hope of, of humankind, mankind is, is found. And that's in, in Jesus Christ in the Bible. But, but as always, I'd like to thank every one of you from the bottom of my heart for tuning into today's podcast. And God bless.